Um, The reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Um, You can see it on the screen or in your Bibles, your own Bibles. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human would, as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, thank you, Matthew. Now, you can see an outline of where we're going um, on the online leaflet. If you just point your device at that, and that will give you the, the Bible passage and then an outline. But there are some physical ones out there for those who are against these. <laughs> okay. Now, I want to begin today by talking about getting the death wobbles. All right? Do you know what the death wobbles are? That out-of-control wobble you get when you go too fast just before you're about to crash and die. All right, maybe you've experienced this on a bike or on a skateboard or on skis, hopefully not a motorbike. All right, I once rode my bicycle with my friends from Goulburn to Bathurst. It took a week. The climax of our journey was to ride around Mount Panorama Racing Circuit at Bathurst, where the Bathurst 1000 is held. 
As a kid, I'd spent many Saturdays each year, sorry, one Saturday each year for many years, watching the Bathurst 1000. But it wasn't until I got there in the flesh that I realised how steep was that mountain. It's very, very steep. And I remember going down and seeing the concrete barriers on the side. I felt quite vulnerable on my uh, bike. I didn't realise how sharp the bends were. I had new, new respect for the racing drivers. So here I was on the top of the mountain, I was beginning my descent, I was picking up speed, I was going too fast to just jump off. I reached for my brakes, but then something happened that had never happened before in the history of my whole bike, read, bike riding, the brake cable temp popped out, right? So I squeezed it and nothing happened. I'm going on the top of Mount Panorama going down and I see my friend in front of me take the first corner at an angle that I had never gone at before. And then I took a deep breath and with my heart in my mouth, I did the same. <gasps> so I remember I was picking up speed going down, unable to stop. I was going out over the other side of the road. It's a public road. There could have been traffic coming up. Mercifully, there wasn't. So the Lord preserved my life then. And I remember coming into the last corner. It was as I was coming to the last corner, suddenly my bike got the death wobbles. It just did this and the wheels started doing this. I was just out of control and I remember I shot up the fastest prayer you've ever said and, um, and somehow, somehow I was able to get control and then coming down for that last final straight, I was flying down but I was just so relieved, relief was just coursing through my body, I thought the Lord has preserved my life, oh my goodness, oh, death wobbles, okay, um, you don't want to experience them. The Apostle Paul writes because he was afraid that the Thessalonian Christians were experiencing spiritual death wobbles following his departure. He'd only been with them three weeks. He'd shared the gospel. People had believed. A church was started. But then some unbelieving Jews became abusive. They enlisted some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a riot in the city, my goodness. Um, the authorities arrested some of the church members. Um, the, the church sent away Paul and Silas and Timothy for their own safety. And now, and then Paul goes, he, he's out of there. But then he's worried about these people, the believers who are still back there facing the heat. Paul's now in Athens. He's writing back to them. He'd been so worried about this young, young church that's just started that he sent back Timothy. Um, he was afraid that they were experiencing the death wobbles. He sent Timothy back to see how they were going. And Timothy now has returned back to Athens from being in Thessalonica with them. And he has come back with the news that, praise God, guess what? They have not given up. More than that, they have kept the faith. More than that, they are, in fact, thriving and flourishing despite the considerable opposition and persecution they're enduring. And so now from Athens, Paul's writing back to them to encourage them. He's immensely relieved because he had been worried about them. He's thankful, but now he's writing to reassure them, to put their minds to rest. Because you can imagine what the opponents of Paul, who are still there, would have been saying to these Christians in there uh, at Thessalonica. Forget Paul, he wasn't genuine. As soon as the pressure heated, he was off. What does that show about him? 
He was a charlatan. He was only in it for the money, for what he could get out of it, for the power, for the glory. Come back to what you knew beforehand. This was just a flash in the pan. Let's just write it off to history. We won't say anything more about it. Your little weird experience will just go back to how things were. Through Timothy, Paul knows the sorts of things that his opponents were saying to the Thessalonian Christians. So now Paul, the apostle, writes back to reassure them. Now, last week, he wrote to um, reassure them, first of all, that their experience, the little thing they went to, their conversion to Christ, their turning aside to idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, that wasn't fake. That was genuine. This was a real work of God in their life. When my gospel came to you, it came not simply with words, but with the Holy Spirit, with power, with deep conviction. It wasn't fake. What God did in you was real, okay? You're genuine, okay? And now in chapter two, he's saying, guess what? When I came to you, I wasn't a charlatan. I was genuine too. He's defending himself against smear. And I'm really glad he did because this chapter perhaps is the one place more than any other in the New Testament where the, we have the Apostle Paul opening his heart and sort of unburdening himself. This is the Apostle Paul laid bare. This is Paul unplugged, right? Now this chapter, therefore, is all about Paul saying, no, I had integrity, I had genuineness in my relationships with you, in my dealings with you. We begin with Paul and the Thessalonians, if you look at your outline, and then what we're going to, that will be most of the talk, right? Then at the end, we'll, we'll turn to apply it to us. So, what he's doing in this chapter is he's debunking the smear campaign, first of all, that was being waged against him. How does he do it? Well, he simply reminds them of what they already know. He's not adding anything new that he's made up now. He's appealing to what they already knew of him. Verse one, as you know. Verse two, as you know. Verse five, you know. Verse nine, surely you remember. Verse 10, you are our witnesses. Verse 11, for you know, all right? Now it's important that he actually appeals to what they know because then they have a memory by which to validate Paul against the smear that was uh, coming against him. He's not writing something new and defending himself from information they don't know. So to the charge that his visit was a failure, Paul says, you know, brothers and sisters, our visit to you was not a failure. It wasn't without results. To the charge that he was self-interested and shallow and he conveniently skipped town to avoid any opposition, he says, look, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. He went to Philippi before he went to Thessalonica. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition while, while we were there. The heat was on while we were there. It wasn't just afterwards. To the charge that his zeal was either mistaken or, or deceitful, he was, he was masking some ulterior motive, he said, look, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. Okay, well, what is his motive? What is his rationale? 
Well, he explains. I mean, the reason we came was simply to pass on the gospel because God entrusted it to me to pass it on. I'm a steward. That's what you do when you've been given a life-saving message and told to take it to the world. You do the job of the steward. You pass it on. He says, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's why he came to Thessalonica. Okay, but surely he's getting something out of it, right? Who is he trying to please? I mean, surely he's trying to earn the commendation of someone, some group he's pandering to. He says, guess what? Well, we were not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery. All right, now flattery is something that someone uses if they're trying to earn someone's praise. We didn't do it. We didn't use flattery and neither did we put on a mask to cover up greed. We weren't lining our pockets from this. He says, God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Now this is very rare, I think, because most people who peddle a message do it to receive praise from people. But Paul says, not me. The one who I'm seeking praise from is God. Now, we're in Advent season. Advent, if you don't know, is the time traditionally, just before Christmas, when Christians turn to think about the fact that Christ will come. We're already approaching Christ's, a celebration of Christ's first coming, and it's appropriate at this time to then think about, well, if Christ came, he's going to come again. And so Christians traditionally use this lead up to Christmas to try and think about Christ's coming. And so that's why I chose to preach on 1 Thessalonians here, because in every passage, uh, Paul mentions something about Jesus' return. In every passage, except this one. Although he does speak of Christ's coming indirectly because he talks about whose praise he lives for. He lives for God's. But when will Paul receive that praise from God? He'll receive it when Christ returns. And then suddenly at that moment for Paul and for each of us, everything that we do, that we've done in our life will come to light. So all the things that we have poured ourselves into, but which were really selfish, self-centered, not done in faith, on that day, they are gonna vanish. And the things that we've done selflessly in faith, they will remain. Paul was an apostle. He'd been a witness of Christ's glory. And the risen Lord Jesus ascended, he entrusted Paul with the gospel. Jesus told him to take it to the Gentiles, to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And that's why he came with the gospel to this city. That's why he begins meeting the Jews there first, but then with the Gentiles on view. And because he's longed to please God, what he wants to hear most of all is those words of commendation from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's living to hear those words from the lips of the one he knows as Lord. You know, we sang, I want to know him, Jesus my Lord. Paul already knew him, but he said, I want to know him more. He said that in Philippians 3. 
I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know him. He already knows him. I want to know him deeper. Deeper. The one I live for. So that on that last day, having known him and then having been stirred to serve him in faith, it'll be out. And I'll hear from the lips of my Lord, well done. It's worth pausing, isn't it, and asking it, whose praise are we living for? Um, I, sp- I think in my teenage years, my early 20s, I was Christian, but I think honestly, there was a, l- a lot of me which was living for the praise of people. And <laughs> God's been kind in a weird way, cut me down numerous times, uh, taught me, humbled me, um, not to live for praise of people. Um, It's very easy, of course, for someone in my role to live for the praise of people. Um, Now, most of you are very, very kind, okay? So the wonderful kindness that you show me is you don't compliment me too much. Because, of course, you know that I could get a big head, right? And um, that's the reason, right? It must be. (laughs) But, you know, it's true. I mean, who else really in our society gets a platform to speak to 150 people every single week about substantial life-changing stuff which I haven't even had to think of. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it, really? And I could take all that kudos for myself. Someone, oh, my life was changed. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's me. No, it wasn't me. Of course it wasn't. Um, How easy it would be to live for the praise of people. But, of course, I know that as helped as I am by the odd positive comment, because I do need encouragement, um, but, but as helped as, you don't have to swamp me later on, but as, as, as helped as I am with that, on the last day, it's not gonna be your praise that matters, it will be Jesus. That's the one I have to live for. So Paul's words are a helpful reminder, a helpful challenge for me. What about you? Whose praise do you live for? You don't need to be a pastor, of course, um, to get praise from God for how you live. Everything you do can be an act of faith. Um, the way in which you interact with someone, the care that you show to your neighbor, to the annoying kid at school if you're a teacher, um, the annoying teacher, fellow teacher at school if you're a teacher, your colleagues, it, it, what you decide to do with your money, um, case in point, um, people we love, people we don't love, um, how you interact with them, for better or for worse. Whose praise do you live for? Okay. The astounding thing with Paul is that God figured front and center in his thinking. It wasn't just the people, of course, who matter to him, who he lived for, people who he loved or people who had power over him. No, no, no. He was gripped so much with the reality of Jesus and living for God, that that was front and center in his motivation and thinking. It was the main driver that he had. He lived to please God. What a fantastic example, I think, for us. Now, does this mean that he was so heavenly minded that he was relationally of no value at all on earth, (laughs) on the ground? Not at all. 
to show how relationally in touch he was and engaged towards the Thessalonians, he says, I was like family to you. I was like a child to you. I was like a mother to you. I was like a father to you. He says, first of all, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. We had it. But instead, we were like young children among you. Meaning, of course, he was gentle. He wasn't overbearing. He wasn't into power. He was, in fact, like, when you think about it, Jesus who used his power to humble himself and to serve. Paul knew this was God's heart. And so he was gentle with the Thessalonians instead of lording it over them. I was like a child to you. And then he says, guess what? I was also like a mother to you. Literally, um, I was like a nursing woman. Uh, meaning just as a nursing mother, despite being sleep deprived, despite sort of functioning in a fog, stumbling through the day, despite the difficulty of those early months, just as a, and I've got two daughters in this situation, despite, you see, it, see them going through it, despite the fog and the sleeplessness and you know, the difficulty, they will pour themselves in with tenderness and love towards their little ones, who wake at annoying times and cry but are so dependent. And Paul says, I was like that to you. Tender, loving, caring. I was like a nursing mother to you. He says, because we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well. We were open. He says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. Paul didn't want to be a financial burden to them. And this was his policy. Whenever he planted a church, he, you know, the new recipients, he didn't want them to fund him. So he used his trade. He was a tent maker by trade. So he took, or it was a good trade. You could do it moving around. He took orders. He made tents on the side. He earned money. He said, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. He was working to support himself in any spare time he had. He was sharing the gospel with them. Now, this, he said, was me being like a mother. I was really concerned for you. I was trying to be tender to you. Okay, not demanding on you, but someone who served you. And finally, he said, I was like a father to you. Now, if I asked you, what do you think is the primary function of a dad? Okay, what's their primary thing that they need to do? Now, maybe you'd say provide. Maybe you'd say, I don't know, be the disciplinarian in the family. I don't know. I wonder what you'd say. Well, what Paul says is for, and it's really worth remembering, especially if you're a dad or a grandfather, but not just if you're a dad or a grandfather. They are really instructive. Okay, so here is a little summary in the Bible of what it means to be a dad. All right, so you ready? First of all, you are a godly role model. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believed. That's the first thing. Dads and granddads, your family needs you to be the one who sets the example in godliness of life. That is the first fundamental, basic thing that you bring your family, according to Paul. Okay? 
Now, I'm a dad, this is a big ask. <laughs> you think, oh gosh. <laughs> All right, it is a big ask. Guess what? God asks us to be men and to step up and to control ourselves and emulate his character and grow in our godliness. This is what God requires of us. And he's given us wife, children, maybe grandchildren, who are looking to us. So if you're feeling challenged, good, do it. Be a godly role model for your family, okay? That's the first thing. It doesn't mean, however, being a legalistic schoolmaster because Paul then says, you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children and then we get the other ones, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, I love this because this is the summary. It tells me the second, third, fourth characteristics of what it means to be a dad or, guess what, a pastor. Okay, you said a godly role model and then three things, encouraging, comforting, urging those under our charge to live lives worthy of God. Okay, this is really helpfully instructive. Dads, your job is to be an encourager. Now, um, I've become aware in the last year, I don't think I'm naturally an encourager, truth be told. Um, it's something that I need to work at getting better at, and I'm doing it. I'm trying to learn to be a better encourager, right? To be better at encouraging others, praising the good, pointing them to Jesus, to live for his commendation, reminding them of the reward. Men, cultivate that aspect of your life where you are an encourager of other people. Okay, godly role model, encouraging. Then, comforting, isn't that interesting? Usually, comforting is something we would say is a role that belongs to the mum because it's a natural female strength, all right? And of course, mothers are extremely comforting. But Paul draws our attention to the fact that there is a special comfort that kids need dads to give them. Uh, men, we can, you know, the, the, the years of being emotionally distant from our kids, it's not to be. We are to be comforters. Okay, now maybe you think, I'm, again, there's a deficiency there. I'm not naturally a comforter. Well, ask God, maybe talk to other men, make it a goal to grow in it, okay? That's what it means to be a dad. Godly role model, an encourager, a comforter. And then, lastly, urging them to live lives worthy of God. Now, again, this is really helpful that Paul's included this because most dads, I think, leave this off. Um, most dads, I'm speaking as one, assume that if we set the example, if we love our kids, our kids will then live lives worthy of God. Not necessarily. They might feel loved, they might have well-founded characters, but will they live lives worthy of God? What they need from us is for us to urge them along this path. And that involves us speaking to them about living for God, who has called them into his kingdom and glory, actually opening our mouths, having the conversation, trying to be an encourager, um, you know, to speak at different ages throughout their development, saying, 
you know, I'm, I'm so encouraged to see you take these steps. Keep living for God, okay? Or indeed, having a correcting conversation, gently and appropriately. Imagine the impact if dads did this. Paul was like this to the Thessalonians. And seeing him describe this as an essential part of being a father made me realise that these were areas I needed to grow in. I've got three daughters, I've got two sons-in-law. I need to actually have the conversation with them and encourage them. Words need to come out of my mouth where I am urging them to live lives worthy of God. Okay? It's not something, again, that's a natural strength for me, but I think there are people who I can look to if I think about it, who are good at it, and I can learn from them. So in these three different relationship ways, being like a child, a mother, a father, Paul has said, look, me living to please God when I was with you didn't mean my head was in the clouds. On the contrary, I was like family to you. And then he says, and guess what? You were like family as well. To the wider church, you know, without realizing it, you became like your wider family of believers in Judea. In the sense that you suffered from your own people in your own city the same things that the Judean churches suffered from the Jews where they were. Suffering for our belief in Jesus is something that sometimes happens in Australia, but not often. And so if it happens, when it happens, it can come as a great shock because then we think, what is God doing? This is strange. This is not meant to happen. I didn't expect that. Why didn't God ever tell me about this? Okay, and we can think God uncaring or unfair in allowing it. Paul's saying, guess what? It's normal. It's normal. And for the Thessalonians, it was Jew, and, and for Paul and all the Christians in Judea, it was Jewish opponents, actually, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Now, I want to be really careful in the climate today. Because you may have noticed if you're listening to the news this week that there is rising anti-Semitism which is happening around the world. Um, a lot pinned to what's happening in Gaza at the moment, but not just that. Um, anti-Semitism is not good. Okay, We should not be anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. I don't want you to hear me in saying what I'm about to say, adding to this feeling of anti-Semitism. Remember, if you will, uh, that Jesus was a Jew, the 12 apostles were Jews, all the first Christians were Jews, Paul was Jewish by race. So when Paul speaks against the Jews, he's speaking about those who were hostile to the gospel. Now, of course, Gentiles can also be hostile to the gospel, can't they? Well, why does Paul mention the Jews here? Well, because in their instance, they were that group of people in Thessalonica who were opposing Paul's preaching and opposing people turning to confess Christ as Lord. And Paul mentions it because, I mean, he's seeing it in his own lifetime. It's becoming a bit of a pattern, to be honest, for him. The Jewish opponents were the ones who were maligning Paul. They were trying to undo the work of God in, in the, the, the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Paul has to defend himself. He's drawing a contrast. He's saying, guess what? I, in my heart motivation, here's what's going on for me. I am trying to please God. But, verse 15, they, who consistently oppose God's messengers because they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out as well, they displease God. 
I'm trying to please God, they are displeasing God. And in fact, they're hostile to God, to, uh, they're, sorry, they're hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, what they are doing, in fact, is heaping up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Paul is saying, insofar as listening to God's messengers go, they are not the good guys. So don't listen to them when they besmirch me, when they rubbish our time together, when they sow seeds of doubt about the genuineness of your conversion. Okay, that's verses one to 16. Now I want to take three short steps to help us think through how it applies to us. Now you might say, well, you could just finish here, and I could. There's the obvious point about living to please God. There's the relational points from the child, mother, father that we can learn from. But just take a step back to see what this chapter's about and what's happened. Paul is an apostle. His character is impeached. He's defending himself here. How on earth is this relevant for us? The clue comes in verse 13, which we jumped over. Paul says, if you look there, He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, just see what he's saying there. Paul, he has brought them the word of God. They were his words, but they're also God's words. Because Paul, through his words, is bringing a message that God has given him to pass on. God entrusted this message to Paul. Paul comes, he shares it, meaning that his words are not simply human words which he has made up, they are God's words. Now, for us, in the, we have Paul's words, don't we, in the Bible. All those books he wrote in the New Testament. But when we read them, well, what words are we reading? They are not simply Paul's words, they are God's words to us, which means if we besmirch Paul's words, if we disregard Paul's words, if we um, discard Paul's words, we besmirch, we disregard, we discard God's words to us. But how we treat the message is also how we treat the messenger and the one who sent the messenger. Let's go further. If you reject Paul's words, you're not just rejecting God's words, You're actually rejecting the one who sent the messenger, God himself. To reject the message is to reject the one who sent the messenger, God. So the relevance of this chapter to us when Paul's defending himself is if we reject Paul or we regard his words only as his words, not as the words of God, we end up rejecting, maybe without realizing it, God who wants to speak to us. And that's why it's so important that we're persuaded if Paul, that, sorry, that Paul was genuine, that he wasn't a fraudster, wasn't a charlatan. When you come to read any of Paul's letters in the Bible and you open them up, just answer honestly, do you, what's your default way of coming at them? Do you come thinking, oh, these are Paul's words? Is that your first thought? Or do you come thinking, This is God speaking to me through Paul. It's a subtle distinction, but it will affect a lot of how you approach the Bible. 
Paul's saying, my words are God's words and they've been recorded for us, for us. Okay. If we accept that Paul was a genuine apostle sent from God and that his words are God's words, now go the next step from Paul and us to God and us. If Paul was a genuine apostle from God, bringing the true message of God, then all that stuff that Paul has said about the way he interacted with the Thessalonians as God's messenger, guess what? When we open the Bible, this is how God is interacting with us. Okay, what do I mean? To the Thessalonians, Paul said he came to them as a messenger of God. He modeled godliness. He was gentle. He was tender. He was encouraging. He was comforting. He was urging them to live lives worthy of God. When we open the Bible and we read God's words, this is exactly what God is doing to us. He is being gentle. He is being tender. He is being loving. He is encouraging us. He is comforting us. He is urging us to live lives worthy of him. We can trust him when we open the Bible that all these things happen when we read it. So if you want to experience God's gentle and tender love spoken into your life, then you open the Bible and you read it as his words. If you want to be encouraged by God, you open the Bible and read it. If you want to be comforted by God, you open the Bible and read it. If you want to be urged to live a life worthy of God, you open Paul's words and you read them because this is how God's speaking to you. This is God coming to you in this way. And lastly, as we do this, this will transform our relationships with others very quickly. Because Paul shows us being holy, righteous, and blameless among people means being like a child, gentle rather than overbearing. It means increasingly being like a nursing mother in our tenderness and care for other people. It means developing the godly traits of a father, being encourager, a comforter, and an urger. This is how God changes us when we read his words. It should be the case that if we come to the Bible, feeding it, correcting us, as we go through life, we will increasingly become like this to other people. Okay, I've talked a lot. Let me just ask some questions and then I'll quickly pray. So if you just shut your eyes, I just want you to ask these reflective questions for you. In my life, who am I trying to please? Whose praise am I seeking? People's praise or God's praise? In living to please God, do I think about Jesus' return? When I open the Bible and read Paul's words, am I receiving it as the words of men or the words of God? And which of the family characteristics is the most obvious first one for me to work on? Our Heavenly Father, May you grow these in us as we try to please God, as we wait for your Son from heaven. Amen.